0: The D-Day of Operation Crossroads. The atomic bomb supervised by Vice Admiral Blandy at Bikini Atoll in mid-Pacific. Crews leave the target ships in Bikini Lagoon, many for the last time. The B-29 Dave's Dream takes off from Quartelaine to deliver the bomb. Equal to 50,000 tons of TNT, While an electric metronome counts the final seconds. Now you're right. Now, I'm away.
1: Thank you for tuning in to WVEW LP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM. It's Sunday at noon, and you're listening to Indigo Radio. We are a group of educators seeking to deepen understanding and make connections. Find us at Indigo Radio on Instagram, Facebook, or download a previous show on SoundCloud and Apple iTunes. We've been broadcasting for over four years, so there are hundreds of shows from topics of public health to youth voices of resistance. Subscribe weekly to get new shows right to your device. My name is Becca and I'm an educator in Springfield, Vermont and alumni and faculty with the Spark Teacher Education Institute, a one-year teaching certification program right here in Brattleboro. Today, we will be airing an interview with co-host Nina Kunimoto and Liam Noble, former Navy enlistee who shares his experiences as a soldier and how he became politically engaged in the struggle against war. We will have a follow-up show next week about counter-recruitment and what young people should know before joining the military, and also some practical steps to resist recruitment in schools. Thanks for listening.
2: I'm Liam Noble. I was an enlisted sailor in the Navy for about five years. I was on the USS Ross, which is a destroyer, that was stationed out of Rota, Spain. That was like our home port. Um, And I worked on radar and ballistic missile defense was my official job. So there was a lot of learning about international politics, especially because we were in the Eastern Mediterranean a lot during the Syrian civil war. A lot of talk about Iran, uh, Turkey, uh, especially Russia, because we went to the Black Sea. Mm -hmm. a few times what drew me to the military originally i'd say was probably i wanted to go to college but i wasn't sure how to do it the military has um or i should say the the veterans uh affairs has has the gi bill which will pay for four years of college when you complete an enlistment Mm -hmm. um and that appealed to me a lot because i wanted to be independent and able to go to school and emerge with no debt, which uh, scared me a lot when I was younger. But also, I, I wanted a-, a sense of adventure. I wanted to get out of my town. I grew up in a farm town in Connecticut and I wanted to kind of have a story. Um, I wanted a little bit of romance in my life, and, and traveling the world in the Navy really a- appealed to me.
3: And just out of curiosity, like that, those are like the total selling points of the Navy, right? Oh,
2: yeah. Absolutely,
3: <laughs> and did did the military fulfill that? Fulfill the, the GI Bill, and you know the, your your desire for adventure.
2: Yeah in in a in a way that manifested itself that I wouldn't have imagined. Um, obviously, my imagination of it was very different from the reality. Looking back, I can say, okay, I have a story. Now, would I would I have enlisted again? No. Knowing what I know now, I, I I would never be able to go back and make the same decision. It was good for me in some ways that I made a lot of friends and got to experience life outside the country um, and, and live and work in a different place. Mm-hmm. Um, and the friends I made, especially on my ship, are eternal. I mean, I still talk to them all the time. The things that I went through personally, uh, and then I saw a lot of my friends go through, I... Um, I would never recommend that anybody join the military. Uh, in fact, I have a, a few friends that joined after me that I I, I basically begged them to reconsider. Um,
3: you had said um, that your imagination and reality were a little bit different, and maybe it's linked to why you're saying to your friends and others uh, not to join the military, if you could expand a little bit about on that.
2: Yeah, sure, and it has to do with the, the how boring it is first of all how mundane it is uh which isn't something that you would maybe have have considered uh oh it is a, a feeling of being trapped and when you're trapped especially trapped at like uh the bottom of a, of a of a social ladder uh when you're enlisted and you've just started out is a, is a very per- peculiar experience um but i would say that the uh, the romance of of joining the military fades very quickly um you kind of want to picture yourself as you know someone in uniform someone who is uh special and a hero but after you know a couple months of living in a barracks room and and doing nothing you realize okay well this is actually a complete fraud there's nothing special about this i'm just uh basically um either a janitor which is you know that that's that's what you do all day or Mm -hmm. um I was in a very technical advanced race. so I was going to school a lot, but there's there's certainly no respect to no, um, there's no satisfaction, I think. That was me personally. A lot of other people did enjoy it, I think. But for me personally, the romance faded very quickly. And I okay. think when you're around people who are outside the military, there is an urge to play the part and to kind of like fulfill the the fantasy of someone who joined the military. And I think that's a lot, of how the, the, the myth of, you know, the soldier coming home for, for leave or to visit kind of perpetuates itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do have to play the part in it. That's very satisfying. But your normal day-to-day is, is just monotony.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So it didn't feel that, like, romantic image of travel.
2: No, um, exactly. I was, I was a radar technician. So I went through two years of school uh, before I even went to a ship. So a lot of my mm-hmm. time was spent waiting around for classes to start and i mean waiting for a period of months for the next class to start Um, some people have to deal with that others don't others go right to the fleet which i was Mm -hmm. desperate to do i wanted to get out and do something i would say that especially when i joined the mission of of the military even the recruiting was explicitly political i I have a a poster hanging uh, in my basement that I, i got and the the motto of the military the recruiting phrase when i joined was um a global force for good. Mm, so yeah, uh, it's, it's acknowledged that you're out there to be, um, I, I guess, holding together the, the, the forces of uh, democracy or whatever. And
3: and so I'm just out of curiosity. Did that message like when you were still, I'm assuming, did they recruit you out of high school?
2: I, Sort of. I reached out to the recruiter originally. No one came to my oh, high okay. school. Um, I I, I, it was. I was very active in. I want to leave, and I. I can mm-hmm. see that this is the way to do it, and Got I, I it. did. I, I. left for boot camp a month after graduating high school. I was not waiting around. I was very excited to leave.
3: What do you tell your friends um, when you try to um, tell them like not to do that? But what if they need? the GI bill to go to college or well, that's
2: the, that that is the thing. Um, I would never recommend anyone join the military, but if you're, if you're out of options in life, um, then it may be the only path forward. Um, So I I really can't criticize or or recommend doing that if you need to do it. That's absolutely your decision to make. And Uh, I think
3: that's a larger, like that bring that little piece right there of, there are certain groups. I th- I feel like there are two forces. One is we have a volunteer military, so you know no one's conscripted as in other countries. Um, so the military needs bodies, basically. Right. But then there's that other half is you know who are those people, and those are the people. Um, you know, I I want to I want to go back to exactly the word you said, bottom of the social ladder. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know poor working class um, working poor communities where they don't have those other options Um, so yeah those are definitely linked together um, because I mean they they can't incur they they don't even you know their parents couldn't even probably help them with with the school debt you know there was um I just participated in a the debt collective there was a protest here in brattleboro where you know everybody was on the corner shouting but you know they burnt their debts and it's it is okay
2: yeah and okay. some
3: <laughs> and some are refusing to pay right is that larger um conversation of you know kind of like health care a human right or you know or do we have to go into debt
2: <laughs> yeah absolutely
3: or education like you know if you want to get education do we have to go into debt you know so yeah I I think those are these are very linked and and that may push people um into the military I kind of wanted to to circle back a little bit um to something you said earlier about um international politics is that something um were you given courses um in sort of international politics or political science?
2: No, I would say I would say definitely not. And there's a reason for that in that I was enlisted. I was not an officer. Um, mm-hmm. The officers were the ones who were expected to be educated and do diplomatic work when we went to ports. Uh, now, everything I've talked about up to this point had been my time before on the ship. And after going onto the ship mm-hmm. and going around to places, then everything became very... Um, Diplomatically, politically focused. Uh, that was a hard change in my life, where all of a sudden I am in um, Albania, I am in uh, Trieste, Italy, I uh, am mm-hmm. in Georgia uh, on the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for the enlisted, there was always uh, when before we went out into the port for you know off time after being on the ship for for two or three weeks straight, there was always mm-hmm. like presentations, like um, here are some laws that are local to the area. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't break them. Don't cause an international incident, please.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but it wasn't our job, or rather, I should say, we weren't trusted to uh, be be the ones talking to the locals, which always bothered me because I'm 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 very interested in um, well meeting new people, for example, or right. or trying to get to. Um trying to find the 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 truth of the world when i was when i was younger uh 19 or 20 when i went over to spain uh, on the uss ross uh, Mm -hmm. i was absolutely possessed with the idea of like there are certain things out there i don't know and i felt like i was on like a a, almost like um a hard wall of of what i knew and there Mm -hmm. i was just waiting to break through it but i couldn't figure out what exactly it was about the world that baffled me so much and i was a very Mm -hmm. curious person and going around uh, and experiencing all these things in, in, in all these different places um, really uh, 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 was a formative time for me. And especially, uh, uh, this is a time, though, so I met a taxi driver in Morocco. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a younger guy in his 20s. And he was a taxi driver. And after talking to him, because he spoke English, uh, mm-hmm. I realized that I had a lot in common with this person um and it really it it almost troubled me in a way because it was so different to what i expected but i had a lot more in common with them than i have um to people in my own country for example mm-hmm. um not only do we have a lot of the same values but we had a lot of the same problems mm-hmm. uh and and what really blew my mind is that we had a lot of the same um we had a lot of the same fears we had a lot of the same interests especially what What did we need to just keep moving on the day to day? What did we need to survive? What did we need to be happy? And Mm -hmm. I feel like the similarity between this random taxi driver that I still remember from Morocco really drew a hard dividing line um, and made me realize. um, That I'll have more in common with this this person in this country that grew up 4000 miles from my home, than I will with some people in my country, just because we we. We're, we don't have the same the same interest heart we don't need the same things we we wanted to live at least a little bit comfortably, and that was difficult for us rather than well I, I suppose the the interest of someone who is already um f- fabulously wealthy and
3: you and the taxi driver um just wanted to live have your needs met and live a happy life you know, relatively. Yeah, absolutely. Without having to labor till 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 you're blue in the face.
2: Yeah, I mean, just getting by and I was I was in the military. So of course, I received a a, a paycheck that made me able to live uh, comfortably, not Mm -hmm. not only because of that, but because so many of my other needs. Health care, for example, was met through the military. I didn't have to worry about that. My house was paid for by the military or my barracks room when I wasn't when I uh, was quite at the rank where I was allowed to have a house. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that stage, making even modest amounts of money, I was still able to live comfortably. So for us, it was really just the, the task of being able to get by. And I could see there was a difference between us and uh, in, in what support systems were there. For me, I mean, I would never have to worry about, um, for example, being homeless because I would just go back to the ship. I right. would uh, I, I always had a, 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 a rack, which is, you know, the Navy word for the bed mm-hmm. was always there waiting for me. There, There's yeah. this there's there's the the need for me to be kept alive because I have to work and everyone is acknowledging that. And um, within our little chain of command, everybody kind of looks out for each other just to, you know, keep everyone functioning. And this mm-hmm. man that I met that I had so much in common with didn't have that he was being worked to the bone as a taxi driver. And I felt kind of sorry for him because I had so many um, protections in my life. I felt to an extent like lived in, the, in, a, in a bubble because I didn't have to worry about, um, for example, being homeless. So mm-hmm. even though we did come from the same kind of lower strata, I mean, I, I think that it's very interesting. I was able to compare my life to him and say, okay, even though we're the same, um, look at how hard he's working just to have the things that are basically provided for me, uh, that I take for granted almost. Mm-hmm. I think you
3: had this moment where, you know, I mean, I'd use the word solidarity, right? You, you, you saw this person where in most cases, like, let's, let's say like, if you never left the U S you know, a, a person who's never left this bubble here, um, you know, they don't see the commonalities of people here and people abroad who, you know, go to the factories and make the shirts that are on your back and things like that, that there is so much in common um, with people, you know, here and and in other places, but we don't have those windows because our windows are usually, you know, like constructed media and stuff like that, that, you know, that, that don't give us those connections. So I think it's great that you have that that, you know, that connection with that person. Do you have other um, experiences or other sort of thoughts um, about being in other places in the capacity of the U.S. military, which is really you are there as a symbol. Um, And I think Mm. that's that sort of, you know, everything became diplomatic. Like I, you know, I used to live in Japan and um, the people in the military, Yes, that they have, you know, you see them a lot out, out and about or whatnot. Right. And, you know, they do represent the United States and particularly the U.S. military. And so that totally makes sense that, you know, you need to know the local laws. And because, you know, even in Japan, there have been a lot of incidences. Oh,
2: absolutely. Yeah.
3: Within within Japan. So, yeah. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, your other other experiences you had if you were able to to get off the ship and, and into town sort of away from the base. Right?
2: right. So that was that was the biggest component for us was being able to leave the ship after being at sea and go into town. Mm-hmm. Um now for, for myself who was always interested in, in politics, this was um an an interesting experience uh because I really didn't know what to make of everything. Uh I didn't feel like I had um I didn't feel like I had a a competent way to view the world. I was felt
1: Mm -hmm. like I was
2: kind of blind, just stumbling along and and, and running into all these interesting things and interesting people, but without really a way to to comprehend it um, beyond just my simple observations and applying it to what I already knew Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, as an American going abroad. It is, um, it is, confusing and it and it does feel it does feel sort of uh almost i i I don't know how to put this but but necessary in a way because we're always told that okay we're we're the center of the world um and for my own experience i had to rationalize continuously okay why why are we here why do we have four destroyers that are permanently stationed in spain and of Mm -hmm. course um the ones in spain are, are there uh to be Ballistic missile defense ships, which was my specific job, was operating mm-hmm. that equipment. Um, and we are—this <laughs> is ridiculous—and I always thought it was ridiculous. But our job was to sit off the coast of Syria for a month at a time and just wait for a a, a, a ballistic missile, an intercontinental ballistic missile, to be launched from either iran or syria into europe and shoot it down now that's completely unrealistic and it would never happen so why are we there why oh. did i spend two years training for this for something that isn't going to happen uh, and then that was saying to me and mm-hmm. I, I think um i think the thing that was my genesis for political awareness was listening to uh dan carlin um the podcaster he had his his common sense show that mm-hmm. was uh he was an interesting guy he was a very he he's a civil liberties and uh you know reign in the u.s empire kind of guy um mm-hmm. and i listened to him when i was still going through school in the navy when i'd only been in for maybe a year and um it made me kind of like hyper conscious of the waste i saw around me but also our, our position i say our position abroad is uh, definitely a euphemism our, our bases that we have all mm-hmm. over Europe and, and, and all over the, world. the world, and mm-hmm. what are they doing there? For example, we have we have an, we have a base in Romania and one in Poland, and they're huge radar bases that are are constantly always on, always looking for um, uh, the missiles launched from uh, Iran or Russia, and they're just waiting. Mm-hmm. but that's mm-hmm. money. that's insane. Um, and it was uh, they, he used a specific word it was military Keynesianism, I believe. And the idea that uh, there's this entire ecosystem of military personnel and, of course, the army of civilian contractors that uh, Mm. are just not to say just living off this money, but like the money that's out there provides this crazy ecosystem of of military related and adjacent people that are, are just like jet setting all over the world. They're uh,
3: profiting off of it because, oh yeah,
2: absolutely. It's so funny.
3: it reminds me of prisons because someone interviewed someone at um Rikers Island who worked at Rikers Island, and they were like, "You know, you know, there's this whole outside, you know, um as as you were just saying, sort of an ecosystem, you know, the blankets and the the laundry and all of that stuff are services, you know that that are being provided. And so I, I, it sounds like it's very similar that. You know absolutely that there's a lot of civilian contracting um, yeah. to support you know uh the military to be there yeah.
4: susan brothers thanks everyone for being here we're from the organization Mark Forward. we are here to say to all those serving in the army and the marines and the air force and the navy that you have the absolute right to refuse to take part in these criminal wars and that's a right that all of you should exercise you have no reason to go put your life on the line and kill and die for profit we've been to iraq we've been to afghanistan and we know what these wars are really about and we join the military for many reasons because we need a college education because we need a job because we need health care and then we join the military and they tell us that our enemies are poor people in caves in Afghanistan, or poor people in the deserts of Iraq. We've been to those countries, and we know that our enemies are not other poor people abroad, our enemies are the people that laid us off from our jobs, that denied us healthcare, that make it impossible to get an education. Our enemies are not in the poorest countries on the planet, but right here in the richest one. The occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan alone are costing over $700 million every single day. This is a crime. Every single day, while so many of us are hurting, while I think all of us here, and the vast majority of people in this country, would agree that we can spend $700 million a day better than bombing people that we have no reason to bomb. We can spend $700 million a day rebuilding those countries we've destroyed. We can spend $700 million a day caring for the veterans we get home when they get home, and then we can spend $700 million a day Giving every single person health care, a college education, a job and a livelihood and a home. That's who we need to be spending our money on. But this government is not going to do that. They're not going to use the money in that way. They're not going to end the wars. And they're not going to do it because it's not our government. It's their government. It's the government of the rich, it's the government of Wall Street, of the oil giant, of the defense contractors. It's their government, and the only language that they understand is shutting down business as usual. And that's what we're doing here today, and we're going to continue to do until these wars are over. It's crystal clear now that these wars are going to continue and expand and go into other countries. That is the trend, that is what we know, that there is perpetual war, and it's only gonna stop if the people stand up and stop it. And that's what we're going to do, sisters and brothers. A lot of people ask me, what do we do? Because we all know things are bad. We all see the atrocities on TV, we read about it, we experience it. People always ask, what do I do? Because we always wanna know what to do, do we vote? Do we support a politician? Uh, what you know? Do we join an organization? What do we do? Well, I'll tell you what we do, it's simple! We fight! We fight! And we fight! And we fight! And we shut down our workplaces! We shut down our schools! We shut down the streets! We shut down business as usual! And we fight until we force the people in there to do what the people out here want! Because that's how we're going to get around and we're going to fight until there's not one more bomb drop! Not one more bullet fired! Not one more soldier coming home in a wheelchair. Not one more family slaughtered. Not one more day of U.S. imperialism. Let's fight to make that happen. We can do it today and in the days ahead. We have to fight to end these wars and create a better world system, brothers.
1: You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM. Today, we are airing an interview with co-host Nina Kunimoto and Liam Noble, who is a former Navy enlistee, and he's sharing his experiences as a soldier and how he became politically engaged in the struggle against war. We just heard a clip from an Iraq veteran speaking out against the war and saying that it doesn't benefit anyone, it's all of our duty to uh, fight these unjust wars so that we can build the world, that we wish to see where everybody has what they need. And I think it's also important to note, as connected to this show, that last week, President Biden announced a complete troop withdrawal from the what has been deemed forever war in Afghanistan by September 11th of this year. So this is a war that's been going on since October 2001, and in the last two decades, Over 100,000 Afghan civilians have been killed, along with 45,000 members of Afghan army and police, and at least 3,500 U.S. and coalition troops. And there was a quote from Democracy Now!'s column this week with Amy Goodman and Dennis Moynihan. Um, And this quote is from Zahar Wahab, who is a professor... Of education in the US and in Afghanistan. And he's been trying to rebuild Afghanistan's shattered education system since the 2001 invasion. He says this invasion, occupation, and bloodshed have destroyed the country, its economy, its institutions, its infrastructure, its education, its way of life, the relationships among the different groups. The occupation has been nothing short of catastrophic. The United States and its allies should never have attacked and occupied Afghanistan. It was wrong. It was illegal. The war may end for the United States, but it will intensify for Afghanistan. And so as we celebrate this uh, withdrawal or this um, claim that all the troops will be withdrawn By September 11th, it's also our responsibility to do the work to make sure that happens and the solidarity work now between working people here in the United States and in Afghanistan. And we'll tune back into the interview with Liam Noble.
3: You know, if you could sort of explain to us like what was that build up and what finally sort of in in many ways turned you against militarism and and the military yeah
2: that's a that's a good question um i f- from the from the moment i joined i was um not very into the military system just in my day to day i thought it was um, indignant and kind of obtuse, and I, I I really hated the way I was treated um, because the difference between I mentioned this earlier the the officers and the enlisted is uh, it's a very very conservative like old world um, social order I guess uh, we're we're saluting someone is legally obligated that does things to a person that's crazy various things turned me against um, the military I had I hadn't even started off as a particularly pro military person. Uh, my aunt asked me why I joined uh, shortly after I did, and suggested that it might have been because I was patriotic. And the answer then was, "No, not really. I mean, I just want college money. I don't know what you expect mm-hmm. out of me. I was never, you know, I never really bought into the whole idea of it, and it kind of, um, I guess, spooked me a little bit. It did hmm. seem slightly weird that I was there, uh, which is kind of funny. But I was in for six years. That was the length of my contract. I was, I was oh, wow. legally obligated for that. Uh, I started reading, I think, like." Maybe in high school, I started reading Hunter Thompson um, and kind of oh, his, his collection of, of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that brought me into, like, Matt Taibbi, who was a journalist for Rolling Stone uh, around oh, yeah. the same time I went in. Of course, my first full year in the military was 2016, which was a huge year for the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what turned me against, I, I suppose, the military would probably have, have been the the Dan Carlin podcast I listened to. Um I don't I don't really know what to say about how I turned against militarism because I was I was never particularly in it for the first place, but it did feel very um authentic and, and satisfying to critique. So I think because I, I hated the, <laughs> the the world I kind of was trapped in, um mm-hmm. uh finding things that were anti military was very satisfying to me. Um, okay.
3: Let's go back to sort of what things that influenced or shaped your political thinking about the world.
2: I think the 2017 strike on, on Syria from it was the ship I would eventually go to the USS Ross was there Mm -hmm. uh, because we were the Europe station ship and watching that happened and realizing that I was in an institution that was not only just personally for me, not fun. Okay, that's well enough. But also, we're breaking international law, and this is insane. And um, almost a feeling of, oh my god, who's going to stop us? This is crazy. Um, so can you
3: can you pause for pause for a second? Just sure. because I, I'm just sort of putting myself in the seat of the of the listener, and they might not know if you could explain the strike on Syria a little bit, and um, and how was the U.S. breaking the international law?
2: Well, I, I think. It, the U.S. broke international law by attacking a sovereign country, and I think that's the most basic way I can put that. Um, now, ostensibly, the reason was uh, because of a, a, a potential gas attack that occurred in Syria. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the reaction from the United States was to um, violate their sovereignty by attacking an airbase with a, a missile, which... If you're a sure. diplomatic person, that's not only irresponsible because, of course, Russians are there since they're kind of like Syria serious sort of in the Russian sphere. Um, mm-hmm. So it's yeah. irresponsible. You don't want to provoke anything with Russia. That's just bad. But it, but it felt to me, especially at the time, it felt insane, absolutely, absolutely insane. And I, I felt because I was in the navy that I was going to get sucked into something, and that terrified me.
0: Hmm.
2: Um,
3: Did other people around you? I just very curious did other people around you think the same way that that it was really insane and and that um you know that that your ship was currently you know breaking international law or the u.s military is breaking international law
2: yeah i think i had a couple friends that were around me um who felt similar and kind of felt the same way um Mm -hmm. not a lot of people though yeah I, i would say probably the the same um well, I'm, I'm people on the outside in, in the civilian world, too, were didn't quite understand how it was a big deal. And it, it was the right. same as the people in the military. Uh, mm-hmm. As far as we're concerned, we're just there to do the job. And if we do it, then we must have done the good job. Uh, right, and right. Thinking in it beyond that. This happened again in 2018, I believe. There was the initial serious strike, and then there was one a year later, which we were in the area for, but we didn't participate. And that was done with Tomahawk missiles. And the uh w- we had Tomahawk technicians, which are also uh um uh fire controlmen, which was my my job, just a, a different designation within that. Mm-hmm. Um and me and another couple friends who were very, very political, very internationally focused. Um we were kind of provocative. We used to, we used to joke with them or or, or sort of make fun of them and call them complicit because they, they broke international law. They were there when they did the missile strike. We used to tease mm-hmm. them about that because our job was to, was to shoot missiles down from the sky. We weren't attacking anybody. We were just defending right. ourselves. So right. for us, it was kind of like, it was a joke, but it was also kind of like a personal affront. Like you are doing crimes and you are helping them commit crimes. Of course, he couldn't say mm-hmm. that too loudly because that might raise some eyebrows, but it was fun to, mm-hmm. to, to poke at people because it made you feel, um, It made me it made me feel like I was separating myself from what was going on, Mm -hmm. which I was very unattracted to.
3: So coming back to, you know, what shaped your political thinking or even you might even still be exploring, you know, um, your political thinking, like, what are some other things um, that 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 is influencing you or has influenced you?
2: Sure, I'd say the biggest one was one of the friends I made in Spain. Cherie, who would probably hate it if i uh if i pronounced her name like that i hope she doesn't listen to this because i can't roll my r's and that r requires a roll. i'm uh i'm in america i just can't roll my r's i'm sorry um but she was probably my my best friend in spain i still talk to a lot and um she was a, a spanish republican very interesting person and she was the one who was very patient with me and, and taught to me about a lot of stuff, especially concerning um, international politics and, and gave me uh, helped, I guess, open my eyes and, and and see things from a point of view that I hadn't seen before, specifically the American centric point of view that mm. we are there to do the good job and uh, keep. Well, I suppose the way I justified it at the time was keep trade flowing. That's the only the only positive aspect I could potentially find from why I was overseas was to protect the trade empire because uh, markets are good. Um, mm-hmm. But she introduced me to to new ways of thinking that I, I can never overstate. And I ended up finding out about um, Noam Chomsky towards the end of my oh enlistment and reading I, I think i listened to requiem for the american dream audiobook yeah. in my car mm-hmm. uh while driving through the sierra nevada mountains in southern spain mm-hmm. and by the end of that road trip uh where i would listened to him for five hours straight i felt like i was a different person stepping out of the car it really was that wild where all of a sudden <laughs> I, I felt like i was um i'd broken through that hard wall that i i hadn't been able to 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 rationalize the things around me. And suddenly I felt like there was an explanation and that excited me a lot.
3: That's interesting. You use the word explanation because, you know, a lot of times, you know, the military has an explanation of why you're there, which is you are there to, for good, to protect freedom. So there are all kinds of explanations, you know, but of course, you know, the explanation that the military gives harms and, and kills people. But, you know, yeah, people like Nam Chomsky or or others have different explanations. Um, And I think that's something that's so important to pay attention to. You know, how do people explain why things are happening? Um.
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had tried reading uh, so many uh, political books before I I found uh, Chomsky. I I read Francis Fukuyama, for example, when I was at sea and just tearing through that. And at the end of it, just coming away more confused and and, and disorientated because it it seems to take what I knew and made it um, opaque almost. Uh, Like suddenly I felt like I I understand less than I did before because it... And, and this is personal against Fukuyama, but it is, it seems to me completely irrational now. There, there is, there is nothing in that that makes sense to me.
3: <laughs> right. I've never read Fukuyama, but I know he's the one that, like, end of civil, like, we're at the end of his, yeah. Yeah.
2: I, I was reading, um, uh, political order and political decay, and I think his thesis in that book was, uh, the reason that we've been in this downturn for the past like 40 years is because in the 1970s, they relaxed standards on bureaucrats. So our bureaucracy is just not functioning as efficiently as it should be. And that explains all our problems. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, uh, interesting. And
3: all these explanations, exactly. And it's like, you know, these explanations like filter down into popular thinking, I'll say. Right. So you had this five hour um, drive in the, Sierra Madres in Spain, listening to Nam Chomsky. And then so um, so what, what happens there? Did you start exploring more? Um because I, I'm actually curious, you know, you um you write about service and socialism. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious like how you came to to this um to these the ideas that that you write about in service and socialism.
2: Yeah, I think one of my, um, I guess political influences that was, uh, really kind of curious to me was when I, when I got to my destination in the mountains, uh, it was an Airbnb. I was staying out with my friends and we were just going out there for the weekend. Um, and as we were leaving, we ran into a man who was asking us for, for help with, uh, ordering something on his on his laptop we were in like a cafe or something we started Mm -hmm. talking to him and realized he was an american um who lived in spain and Mm -hmm. he introduced himself to me and my two friends um as a socialist and started talking to us and we probably spoke to him for about three hours um and i'd say that that conversation was one of the things that made me I suppose confident to pursue a new outlook on on how I on how I saw things because this man was uh not only very articulate but he he just seemed certain
0: Do you
3: are you involved with with resisting against the military or or, or are you involved with any other um resistance movements
2: Yeah, sure, I can talk about that. Um Resistance against the military is is really curious because the the military is, um, really just a, a tool that's that we've kind of built that's waiting to be used by whoever's in power in the United States. Mm-hmm. So I think resisting against the military, I mean, obviously there's what happened in Vietnam with with direct action against you know uh, military logistics. That's that took enormous bravery bravery and, and it's very interesting to look into. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of resistance that. I can think of today is it seems like while the military is controlled by uh, the people in power and in ostensibly we're supposed to be able to choose different solutions between our our multiple different options for elected officials. um, Really they, they have more or less the same foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's difficult as a citizen of the United States to have an, impact on what goes on, even if you got everyone together into one single voting block, which is not, I mean, that that's not how electoral well, politics work.
3: Absolutely. And and we see that in Biden right now, too. Yes. Policy.
2: Yes, so, yeah. absolutely. And if I could just say, I, I, I think it, it's a little bit more complicated than that, because the military does have a mind of its own. Once you get above a certain rank in the military as an officer, you become an admiral, which is less of like a military person who makes tactical decisions with a ship and does all Sorts of things like that. And you become more of a politician and your job is to hang around Washington or the Pentagon and basically uh, tell our elected officials what to do. And if I could just share an experience I had, there was a rear admiral that came to tour our ship and he gave a speech that um, disturbed me and a lot of other people because this man is is an admiral. He's, he's supposed to be uh, very smart and um responsible for, for what do we do next as the military and, and, and mm-hmm. what do we go back and tell uh the, the president and all his um cabinet uh that what what we should be doing and, and in his speech he said that um he said very proudly that war with china is coming oh, not yeah. if but when and that yeah. appalled all of us um I that scared yeah. the crap out of everybody that was there because there was this admiral who, was, who, who, who walked up to us and said on a microphone, um, the world situation, and I'm, I'm quoting him because I wrote this down and I managed to find it today. The world <laughs> situation reminds him of 1939 when Hitler, quote, took advantage of the world, end quote. He didn't uh-huh. elaborate on that. I don't know exactly who was supposed to be Germany in that situation, and yeah. who was supposed to be the rest of the world because for me i we, we were the ones out there provoking china and iran it, it right. was absolute it it was baffling that this man who was supposed to be you know well studied and a wise person to be in a, in a position of command would come out and say something that was completely incoherent and, and didn't make any sense to anybody he was talking to and i remember very very um how, how troubled my friend alan looked, who i kind of looked up to uh, because he was our he was our work center supervisor, he was a rank above me, he was kind of a fun person to joke around with and not a very mm-hmm. serious person at all. And he looked at me and, and said, I don't want to die. I don't want to do my job and end up dying. This is ridiculous.
0: Mm. And
2: that has stuck with me because I think that's the opinion of, of most people that are in that situation. And if you're not in that situation that's probably not a a worry you have to have about considering a potential war with China, but there are people but when you
3: enter the military, forward. isn't it an assumption that you might die? I mean that is an assumption because you you know you learn to fight you know in basic training, you learn mm-hmm. to shoot guns and you know you i mean the assumption of the military is that you will you will go into war that that's the assumption, right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's what a lot of training during boot camp is. It's it's um, it's all about the, the enemy and, and being under attack. And we read a lot and there's a lot of training about World War II. And um, when I was at sea, we did training with the British flag officer sea training. That was a lot of education for things they had picked up from the from the Falklands conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there is this anticipation that we right. have to be ready to fight and we have to know how to fight. But right. having a man who is, you know, in charge come and say, you will be fighting at some point in the future. And he, he talked a lot about how dangerous it would be and how brave we'd have to be in that kind of crap.
3: So if you really, really took sort of a, a satellite view of Asia, there are U.S. military bases that ring itself around China.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um,
3: and so, you know, um, and so he makes the case in that documentary that there is a coming war with china who's it bj prashad who was talking about you know this rhetoric um anti-china rhetoric it's it's so you know there are signs i think um that there could be i mean hopefully not goodness <laughs> you know but um you know but that's the thing it's like there are signs and and i think that you know it, it behooves us all of us you know who hopefully pay attention to prevent it you know because i'm going to use the word supposedly it is supposedly a government by the people you know and 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 right. like stopping you know the vietnam war um you know we can potentially as people stop another war um for and you know because you asked for what purpose like who does a war with china benefit and, you know, and and you were you're asking, you know, why are we doing this? Um, and so it's like, yeah. So that's why I'm not surprised that that Admiral, that, that Admiral, Admiral um, would say that, because I think the signs are there.
2: There is a mentality of, well, we have all this equipment and we have all these people. We might as well use it. Because, I mean, for the admirals, yeah. if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But the only solution yeah. is a military solution.
3: Right, right, and it's so interesting. Um, there's this author named Samir Amin, um, the liberal virus, where he I think it was the liberal virus, where he said, you know, the um, you know, was it Dan Carlin said K- military Keynesianism, mm-hmm. sort of linking the military to um to economics. He who um, was a political economist, and said that you know the U.S. military, the U.S. comparative advantage is the military you know that that's our sort of you know because the comparative advantage in neoclassical and neoclassical economics is you know you specialize in in producing certain things and countries specialize and blah 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 and for the U.S. that that is the military (laughs) because we don't really produce much in this country anymore um so yeah I thought that was interesting because that is what we have we we I mean, if we look at the budget, for example, right, 50% of sort of the federal budget goes to the military.
2: Right. Well, that's the very interesting thing about what people refer to as the military industrial complex. And I think asking yes. what that means is a is a very fun exercise because there's so many, I, I suppose, pressures um, to keep the the military one well funded, but also the companies who produce the military gear yes. well funded. Um, and because they're they they need to keep producing, and because it's it's jobs, and because it's it's money. Um, and it's
3: not all that ma- many jobs, by right?
2: The way. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, Actually, <laughs> yeah, it becomes a situation where the tail is wagging the dog. The, the The fact that we need to keep producing because there's a fear that if we stop producing, it's going to disrupt the economy in some way the production moves foreign policy towards using the equipment that we need to build to have this, this current economic structure and that we don't want to change.
3: Right. But it is also a little bit more than that, I think, um, because I, I did some research maybe like a year ago about, you know, how, how many jobs does, you know, the, the military sort of industry, like, you know, Grumman and, and um, who are the Boeing and all those people, like, you know, how many jobs do they actually create? And they don't create that many, but I think there's that aspect of, for example, AFRICOM, right. Mm. Africa, the continent has a lot of resources, you know, that, um, that, that I think the military with, with all its military bases are trying to position itself, you know, same with, you know, Latin America,
2: Um, So there's that aspect
3: of it, too. Oh,
2: absolutely. the, The need to be there so that we can, in a sense, control what's going on is very strong. And there's the sense that because those things exist in the ground over there, for example, like lithium in Bolivia, that it's not fair if we don't have it. And because we don't have it, we need to have it. Um, and the military is, is one way of, of, I guess, carrying out that 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 mission of making sure that we have these things or that these things are in, in friendly hands so that they can be sold to us. And that's definitely a massive right. motivation for why we have the large military force that we do so that we can control the way that not just trade moves, but we can control the world in a sense that it stays beneficial to us. And that's mm-hmm. what we subsidize the military so massively.
3: Right. As it, as others in the world suffer. But, um, that was such an interesting conversation. I really, really, really appreciate you sharing um your experiences. I think it's, I think it's useful for people to know, you know, um, and, and hear these stories of people, of people, you know, um, but are, are there any, um, last minute or final things you'd like to say to our listeners?
2: Yes, absolutely. You asked earlier about building a more human world. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a good question, because to me, how do you change the world is, is is a is a point that everyone has to try to wrap their heads around. And I think that there's a, a fantasy in the United States that we can we can change the world by by how we spend our money and by uh, engaging with the market in a certain way, for example, boycotting this or only buying metal straws or whatever that mm-hmm. that that's all it takes to change the world but it's it's not and um i think that's that's the biggest lie that we tell ourselves and that we've bought into most um most fully because of of course what you have to to, to realize is that these things that we can choose to buy on the market that's that's it they're choices they're prescribed mm-hmm. choices and we can choose between them but but the real capacity to change the world comes from building um outside the system uh, as it exists today, building an alternative source of power that has leverage over the economic system that we're forced to engage with. So mm-hmm. there's many ways to do this, and, and one of them is is labor unions, and I think that's very mm-hmm. important. Uh, for example, the Industrial Workers of the World is a, is a big tent union inside the United States yeah. uh, that's working to organize people and, and organize Absolutely. jobs in a way that hasn't hasn't. Been done, and it has been on the decline. Um, well, f- forever it feels like
3: the IWW. Yeah, we actually interviewed people from the IWW um, a long time ago. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And if we look at you know what's happening in Bessemer, um, not only the Amazon workers you know rising up and, and unionizing, but also the coal miners nearby. Um, yeah, and and I think IWW is interesting. Like I actually worked at a school where we. We became IWW members. We decided on That's IWW. That's
0: awesome. Yeah.
3: <laughs> um. Yeah, but I think one of the things about IWW, you know, how it was different from other um, unions is that we did the organizing. We had to do the organizing, as opposed to like there being, you know, union staff and like union- right doing that and I think you know that kind of ties into sort of the capacity to change the world you know that that ultimately like we have we you me everybody listening like we all have to do it like we, we're the ones we can't there's no one get this gonna do it for us like you know we all have to kind of figure out figure it out ourselves in so many ways
1: You've been listening to Indigo Radio on WVEW-LP-Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Indigo Radio is a project of the Spark Teacher Education Institute, a one-year teaching licensure program for teaching for social justice in the public schools. Find us at Indigo Radio on Instagram, Facebook, or download a show on SoundCloud and Apple iTunes. We've been broadcasting for over four years So there are so many shows to choose from, whether it's about educating yourself or using in the classroom to teach your students about topics such as climate change, labor rights, and so many other topics. Also, don't forget to support WVEW, Brattleboro 107.7.
0: me ah!